Hey science lovers, welcome to Hooked on Science. I'm your host, Julia Cubans, and this is a podcast where we learn about cool research that you should know about. So right off the bat, I want to plug another podcast. If you want to hear more from me, there is a podcast episode with your name on it. I was just a guest on Planthropology. The episode came out this week. And that is with Vikram Baliga, who was on the last episode of Hooked on Science. It was a ton of fun. We talked about hops. We talked about podcasts. We talked about some of the projects I'm currently working on. We talked about some other stuff that is currently escaping me. But it was a blast, and you should definitely check it out. I'll link the episode in the show notes. And I, again, would encourage you to check it out. Vikram is a very skilled interviewer in ways that myself as a not super social person can only hope to develop. He just has a really easy, comfortable style, and I think that you'll really enjoy the episode. So again, that's Planthropology. I'll link it in the show notes. Go check it out. I mentioned this maybe two episodes ago, something like that, but now is a really great time to Well, in my notes, I wrote talk plants on Twitter. It's always a great time to talk plants on Twitter. But what I think I really meant to type was that it's a really great time to follow the podcast on Twitter. Those sentences don't overlap very much at all, so I don't know where my brain was. But that's all right. Uh, Back to Twitter. I am taking part in a 100-day tweeting challenge right now. I think I'm on day 30, 31, something like that. So what that means is that I'm tweeting every day and that I'm sharing a lot more information, you know, from the episodes, pictures that go along with the episodes, other podcasts that I'm listening to, like Planthropology, and things that I'm enjoying, enjoying things that I have seen that are either related to the podcast, things that I think you might be interested in as a listener, someone who's interested in science, the natural world, what have you. So if you want to follow the podcast on Twitter... The handle is Hooked on Science. Uh, Look for the navy background with the little science icons and you'll find me there. So if you'll notice in the episode title, this is a bonus episode. I have had some, you know, people are busy scheduling. It can get kind of complicated. So recently, I'm just trying to, you know, juggle that and figure that out. So this is a bonus episode. And I'll have a regular episode again for you soon once I get some of that scheduling conflicts and and whatever ironed out. But if you'll remember back to a couple episodes ago, our season opener with Celeste Lebedz, she is coming back again to talk about her research on cryoseismology, which is ice and seismology. So... We are just continuing that conversation about non-earthquake seismology. And so again, Celeste is a PhD candidate at the California Institute of Technology. And this is just a continuation of our conversation. If you'll remember back to the other episode, we talked about human interaction with seismology specifically in terms of COVID. And I just thought that this part, While it's still a part of her research, it didn't really mesh well with what we were talking about in the other episode. So I pulled it out and I'm dusting it off for you today. So if you haven't heard the other episode, it might be helpful just for like terms and general information to hit pause on this and go listen to that first. But I'm not going to tell you how to live your life. Just, yeah, be free and wild. Listen to this first. 
And with that, I guess we will get into the episode. We talked previously about your work on the effect of people on the seismology data that you as a seismologist can collect, but the principal part of your research is focused on glaciers and cryoseismology. Why should we care about learning more about glaciers? Yeah, sure. So I guess sort of big picture is we care about ice. Ice matters. Ice is important. Ice matters for our global climate. Ice is affected by our global climate. Um, and so we really want to understand what's going on in places like glaciers, because how they change over time is going to affect stuff like how is sea level going to rise if we have water going out of those glaciers and into the ocean? Um, and also stuff like how are people's freshwater resources going to change? Because there are lots of communities all around the world that are near mountain ranges that are relying on glacial melt in order to keep a reliable freshwater supply for their drinking, for their agriculture, um, for all the daily needs of life. And it's glacial melt that those communities are getting it from. Um, so we care what's going on in glaciers. The way the other things we can see about a glacier are limited. And, you know, the kind of goal of lots of sciences in general is how can how can I, you know, get an idea of what's going on inside of things where it's hard to see what, how can I expand my view of a thing? That's why we invented stuff like x-rays for people, because we figured, hey, it's probably going to be important to see inside of a person so I can figure out how to, you know, help them and make them better and understand how they work and stuff. So, you know, the goal of glaciology is figuring out, like, how can we understand these glaciers in a more complete way? Um, and that's really applicable to stuff like water resources and sea level rise, also natural hazards. You can get floods from ice dammed lakes. You can have lakes that appear like next to glaciers, but then uh, if they drain suddenly, it can be a big hazard to downstream communities. So yes, yeah, so we care about these. We want to know just how glaciers work because they matter. Okay. Yeah. It, it definitely sounds like glaciers can have some really big impacts on people, both positive and negative. So other than observing water melting or ice chunks falling off, how do you go about learning more about glaciers? So yeah, just like if you're thinking about, you know, how do I figure out what's wrong with a person? You could ask them how they're feeling. You could do a blood test. You could take an x-ray. You have different tools to look at different aspects of their system. So when we're thinking about something like glaciers, we have lots of tools to look at those too. We can measure how much water is coming out. We can look at the surface. We can um, drill a hole down into the, down into the ice and see, see what's going on down there. We can use radar to sort of take an x-ray of the glacier using radar beams. So yeah, each of those is adding one piece to the, the overall picture of what's going on in a glacier. Uh, and seismology contributes to that too. It's another way to look at different aspects of the glacier system. Oh yeah, for sure. And I think that segues really nicely into my next question, which is how do you go about collecting data, specifically seismology data on glaciers? So uh, cool things that seismology can get you from a glacier is ice quakes. If when you have a, a glacier and glaciers are moving. So if you're not familiar with glaciers, Google image them, they are very pretty. And you can see when you Google image them that they're also they're also kind of cracked up. They're, they're big piles of ice and they're cracked up because they are moving. They're flowing downhill under their own weight and that causes some cracking and some sliding and stuff. And all of those, just like, you know, you can 
you know, in, in Hollywood movies, uh, when an earthquake happens, the earth opens up. That doesn't happen in real earthquakes. Um, but on glaciers, it does happen because you can have, you know, um, a crevasse opening in the glacier. So yeah, when those cracks open or when those cracks shut again or when ice slides against ice or when ice slides against rock, all of those motions uh, create like little earthquakes. Um, and those, those are ice quakes. And that kind of information, where and when are these ice quakes happening, can help you figure out, all right, where is there the stress in a glacier that can cause cracks and slides and stuff like that? Um, so you can figure out, yeah, what the, what the sort of stress structure is of a glacier. And that can help you understand its motion. That can help you understand how it's going to respond to changes, uh, stuff like that. You can also, if you ignore the ice quakes, you can get uh, some interesting stuff from the continuous signal in the background. Like that ocean noise I talked about is a continuous background noise signal. And you can detect the ocean uh, on glaciers too. Okay, so speaking of water, the glaciers I've seen always end in a lake or like a waterway of some sort. So I'm guessing that means there's water flowing off or through them somewhere. And that water is obviously moving a lot faster than the glacier itself. What can you learn from that water? So lots of temperate glaciers, you have melting or rain on the top, and then it flows on through down, down crevasses and into the glacier sort of has like, sort of like, it's like it's guts on the inside. And then that water can flow out the end of the glacier. And moving water is noisy and it's seismic noisy too. Um, so that flowing water underneath the glacier creates a seismic signal. And you can detect that on uh, your seismometers as well and figure out, all right, how much water is moving through? Is that water under pressure? How is that water flow changing over time? Is it carrying much sediment? Questions like that. You can get clues from it, um, from the seismic signals that, that it creates, and then you can detect them on top of the ice or next to the glacier or stuff like that. So yeah, it's, it's another way to look at sort of what's going on inside a glacier where we can't just see with our eyes. And it's uh, pretty cool because it's, uh, it's continuous in time. Um, it's relatively low maintenance because you just kind of put a seismometer there and let it do its thing. It sounds like monitoring this glacial water is a good way to learn more about glaciers in general. But before you even get to that, thinking about the glacier itself, how do you decide what glacier you want to spend the time and resources to learn more about? So that's a good question. Um, and uh, yeah, so using using seismology to investigate glaciers is sort of, you know, as scientific fields go, it's kind of in its younger days. So there's still stuff that we're kind of figuring out from this before before we say like, all right, you know, we understand how this works. Now we're ready to apply it to everything. A lot of studies are looking for glaciers that do kind of one interesting particular thing. So yeah, at this point, when, when I'm thinking about a seismic study, I'm thinking like, all right, what's a thing that I want to investigate? What's a glacier that does that thing um, and maybe is a little bit less complicated. And in the same way that biologists want to pick a, a, a model organism, so that way they can study, you know, some particular aspect of its biology while keeping other stuff pretty well known and controlled. I'm kind of looking for that in a glacier. So a lot of my work has been on this hydrology stuff. And so I picked a glacier that was in an isolated valley. So it was easier to figure out how much water goes in, how much water goes out, instead of a big glacier that's connected to a lot of other glaciers. And it can be hard to say, well, it rained on that end, but not over here. And there's a lake over there and all things like that. And uh, then we cover it in seismometers and then it does that thing. And then we're like, all right, now we have a good picture of how this glacier does this thing. But you want a nice variety from that too. So if you're thinking about one, you know, thing that it could do is uh, it could have a lake that drains through the glacier. So some of my research has been focused on a glacier that has a lake at the top that then suddenly drains through the glacier. To look. So it's, it's a good sort of natural experiment to understand hydrology. 
because you know, like, all right, the lake was this big, um, the surface level dropped, we watched it go out. How does that affect the seismic signal? All right. Yeah, that sounds like it probably generates some really awesome baseline information for these glaciers. But when you're thinking about putting seismometers on a glacier, outside of capturing water noise and vibrations, are there any other significant signals, seismic data that you can capture from the glacier? Let's see. Some, oh, so there are interesting cases like surging glaciers. Some glaciers suddenly speed up and go a lot faster. And that's um, exactly exactly why and how they do that. I mean, they're, they're still moving like a glacier, but they do, they do, they do speed up a lot as glaciers go. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's still a little bit of a mystery of exactly why and how the surging process uh, happens and how it starts and how it stops and stuff like that. Um, so that's an interesting thing that folks are saying like, oh, you know, seismometers here can be help, can help us understand that. So they're um, putting seismometers next to glaciers that surge. Stuff like, let's see, other inter- interesting stuff are, oh, glaciers that end in the ocean. Um, when they have big calving events, that's when lots of ice tumbles and tumbles and tumbles off the end. People are observing those with, uh, with seismic signals to figure out like, all right, you know, how well can we translate the seismic signal to this much ice fell off the end? Because that could be a good way to, you know, help keep an eye on that. Once I have a good handle on a lot of those, then I could, you know, sort of drop a seismometer onto any glacier and then help keep track of like, oh, you know, I know what a lake drainage looks like. And now I'm seeing this squiggle there. So I can say, oh, yeah, that was a lake drainage. And I could say, oh, yeah, this this looks like, you know, ice, this type of ice quake happening here. Um, you can eventually, you know, just just have the seismometer squiggle and say, oh, this is this squiggle is that this squiggle is that um, stuff like that to get it back into a very useful thing. Yeah, and I think that kind of takes us to the root of all the seismic data, and that's the data itself. So if you were to take this data on icequakes or on hydrology, do those squiggles look different from each other? How how do you interpret case A and then apply it to case B? Yeah, yeah. So the, the kind of tools that you're using in well, really in any kind of seismology, not just on glaciers here, any kind of seismology when we're looking at glaciers and we're looking at the ocean and we're looking at storms, you know, any anything that you can measure on a seismometer, the sort of variety of things that can happen to your squiggle. You have um, what's what's the timing of stuff. So when does it happen? You have what's its amplitude. So that's how, how big was the ground motion. And you have its uh, frequency content as well. So that's one of the ways we differentiate different parts of this background noise, because, you know, the background noise is happening all the time and it's made of many things like the background noise where I'm sitting here. There's some ocean in my background noise. There's some cars in my background noise. There's all those different things add up into just one squiggle. So, yeah, when you look at uh, frequency content is a really useful tool. So that's, you know, just like with sound, Um, if you take you know, an orchestra playing something, if you separate out just the high frequencies and listen to that, then you're hearing like the flutes and stuff. You separate out just the low frequencies, you're hearing just the trombones and stuff. And so you can sort of pick apart an orchestra by frequency. You can pick apart seismic signals by that too. And so like with the hydrology stuff, uh, one way to figure out, you know, this is the hydrology under the glacier and not, you know, a storm passing by or um, the ocean noise instead is looking at the frequency content. So there's a particular frequency range in which flowing water in a river or subglacial channel type of system can can generate uh, noise really well. Um, so yeah, so we're looking at the timing, we're looking at the frequency, we're looking at the amplitude, and you got to sort of forensically pick it all apart into what came from what. 
Perfect. Well, Celeste, thank you so much for joining me today and talking a little bit about the work you've done, sharing your knowledge. Yeah, yeah. No, this this has been a really fun time. I'm always happy to talk about noise. I make lots of noise about noise. So when anytime anybody gives me the opportunity to share my noise about noise, I'm I'm always ready. You're ready for, for it. it. So if there are or if people want to learn more about the work you're doing. Is there any way, A, they can learn about that, or B, follow along with what you're doing specifically? Yeah, so if people want to check out the stuff that I do, um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Celeste Lebeds, with no spaces or underscores or anything. Um, You can see how to spell that, I'm sure, in the podcast description will have have my name. All right, Uh, so yeah, you can follow me there. Uh, some other cool other cool folks to follow if you're interested in seismology, you can follow groups like the U.S. Geological Survey. Um, they have a specific Quakes account that has really interesting earthquake and other seismology information. Uh, you can follow the Incorporated Research Institutions for Seismology. So they're on Twitter as Iris EPO. Um, and uh, they're sharing really cool uh, seismology information all the time. And there's lots of other, yeah, if you, if you start searching on, on social media platforms for seismologists and glaciologists, there's lots of cool individuals out there, out there too. Cool. Well, I will also put the links to your social media in the episode notes if people want to follow you. But again, Celeste, thank you for joining me today and talking about your research. Yeah, yeah. No, it's been been delightful. Thanks for having me. If you want to follow Hooked on Science on social media, you can do that on Facebook and Instagram by searching at Hooked on Science Pod and on Twitter by searching at Hooked on Science. Thanks for listening.